to worship you, Jesus, planned today to celebrate the Lord's table as well. And all of this is good for us in bringing glory to you and ascribing glory to your name. Our own hearts are filled with joy, a joy that the world can never know until each member of the world becomes part of your church through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, this is a divine privilege every week. It's a privilege that, that many don't have and wish they did to assemble freely and to worship as we believe is best according to your word. And so we thank you. Help us, Father, even now as... I preach your word that you would give us the grace to examine our hearts, to judge ourselves rightly, so that you will not have to discipline us because of sin. Lord, we praise you that you bore all of our sins in your body on the cross. You took the condemnation, the judgment that we deserved. And what you deserved was everlasting life and freedom, and that you have given to us. And we are amazed and awed by the wonder of it. So help us, Father, to think clearly this morning in every respect. Be glorified in this time, we pray, and change us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, uh, the message title that I've given this message is Loving Confrontation, and uh, when I met with the elders this morning, I walked in and sat down, and they said, so the title of this message, should loving be understood as a participle, an adjective, or a gerund? And I said, um, what do you mean? And they said, are you saying that we should participate in loving confrontation with one another, or are you just saying you love confrontation? <laughs> um, I assure you it's the former, not the latter. And if you do love confrontation, then uh, maybe there's another sermon that we need to talk about. So once again, we come to God's Word this morning to learn some things that God wants us to know about His church. And I say it that way because we're not trying to be exhaustive. This is not a theological course on ecclesiology. These are just things, uh, parts of the teaching of what we would call biblical ecclesiology that we believe this church needs to hear now. And that so many of you are new to Calvary Bible Church. You need to hear these things now because we hope you'll stay here for a long time. And we're also getting ready to plant a church this coming summer and that church needs to hear this now. And so there will be other places along the way as we move toward the church plant, as we're kind of cruising down the runway toward liftoff, so to speak, uh, where we will stop the exposition and do a topical message because we believe, the elders will believe that this is what we need to hear right now. This is what we need to do in preparation for the change that's coming. And it's coming. And, um, and praise, praise God, we've done this before, and we have survived and, uh, and have thrived in the midst of it. This is good for our church. 
And so, last week, we talked about the need for hospitality in the church. And that, of course, is a happy topic. We like to talk about getting together and sharing a meal together and singing together and, and uh, reading the scriptures together. But there is another kind of meeting together as brothers and sisters in Christ that none of us, none of us, I hope, enjoy. Let's be honest right up front and confess together that no one likes discipline. Uh, in fact, the author of Hebrews made that clear. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but what? Sorrowful, sorrowful. But in the end, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And those on the receiving end of discipline don't enjoy it, and neither do those who are on the delivery end of discipline. They don't enjoy it either. Nobody likes discipline. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It feels unloving. Nevertheless, administering discipline is essential. In fact, during the age of the Reformers, when they were wrestling with what, now that they're out of Roman Catholicism, what, should, what is a church? What defines a church? What are the key elements of the church? And those key elements were as follows for a number of the Reformers. It was that we would meet together and hear the exposition of the Word, the clear teaching of the Word of God. The Word of God was central, which is, by the way, why the pulpit is in the middle of the platform, not off to the side. It's not secondary. It's not Lord's table first. It's Word of God first. But then it is the Lord's table. We share the Lord's table. That's part of what it means to be a real church. Uh, we do baptism. The ordinances there, those two. Uh, that's part of being a real church. And one of the other essential elements of having a real church without which you are not perhaps a true biblical church, and that is discipline, church discipline. Show me an undisciplined child, and I will show you an unhappy, rebellious child. If it's in a home where there are several children who are undisciplined or disciplined recklessly, and I will show you a home where anarchy reigns. Nobody likes discipline. But the irony is that it's only through true biblical discipline that purity and unity, not to mention love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, the fruits of the Spirit, can flourish in a church and in a home. Consider this. Every human institution, and there are four that God has ordained, whether it be the government, the church, the home, or the workplace, every institution has problems because every institution is full of sinners. In fact, it is composed only of sinners. In fact, if you ever find a perfect institution, no matter which of the four, don't join it because you will mess it up. And of course, as I often say, I'm not actually speaking to you. I'm speaking to the person next to you. We are all hardwired towards selfishness and pride rather than humility and love. And so we sin against one another. We hurt one another. And left unaddressed, even small sins can cause serious harm. As Dr. Wayne Mack deftly comments, the idea that time heals all wounds is one of the most insane statements ever made. 
Time doesn't do anything but provide a fertile environment for problems to grow, warp, and fester until a small problem morphs into a kind of monster that ravages the church or home. And that's the bad news. But wouldn't it be great if there were a cure for such problems in the church and home? Well, I'm delighted to stand before you this morning to announce the good news that God has provided such a cure. It is usually referred to as discipline. My preference is to rather call it loving confrontation. Or you could call it corrective discipleship. I like loving confrontation. Uh, and, and I think we have the freedom to call it whatever we want to call it because the text doesn't give it a name. But it does give us clear instruction. God, as a gift of divine mercy and love for his church, has given us the means for addressing sin in a way that strengthens unity, deepens love, and restores joy. The gospel offers, the gospels of the New Testament offer two occasions where Jesus verbalizes this comprehensive strategy for dealing with sin. And traditionally, as I said, it's been called church discipline. And the other one is the one that Keith read for us earlier. And I commented as he was reading that text, I, I said to someone in the back, I guess I, I picked a really encouraging text this morning. It was talking about it's better for you to have, your, have a millstone wrapped around your neck and be cast in the sea, into the sea. Uh, that's not very encouraging, but it's important, an important warning. And then Jesus goes on from there to give us the instructions about loving confrontation. And so without further ado, now that we've kind of set this up, let's stand together and read Jesus' teaching on this from Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, and we'll start with verse 15, 15 through 20. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Here's Jesus' teaching on the subject. If your brother sins, okay, so that's, that's at the heart of this. What do you do? Somebody sins against you. Or you witness someone sinning against someone else or against the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you, are, two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. And you can be seated. By the way, that last verse is not talking about prayer meeting, where two of you, two or three of you are gathered together. It's not talking about prayer meeting. It's talking about discipline. But you're going to have to wait till next week, uh, Lord willing, for us to get there. And so we have read Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And I would say to you, beloved, Behold the solution for sin and conflict in the body of Christ and in your home. 
Behold the remedy for tension, anger, and despair between believers. Once again, God's sufficient word offers us the only timeless remedy to a fundamental human problem. And for this, we will praise him for eternity, assuming that you will obey his word and experience the joy that comes from doing life his way. Now, I understand that most of us shudder at the thought of having to confront someone about their sin, let alone make a public spectacle of it. It feels, it feels like a terribly unloving thing to do. But then it, it, when it's done according to the instructions that Jesus offers, loving confrontation can be one of the fullest and most profound expressions of love anyone can show to another person. On the other hand, taking the easy road of ignoring sin is the equivalent of selfish hatred. I point you to Solomon who said, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. And this is selfish hatred when you choose not to do what God has called you to do in this regard because it leaves the other person to the destructive consequences of their sin. There's a lot to be said here in this text, and it's going to take two weeks. These were actually originally four messages, but I'm going to compress them into two. There are four steps in Jesus' fullest teaching on loving confrontation, and thankfully, step one is often sufficient to bring about the desired remedy for sin. And so let's begin with the first uh, and we're going to spend our entire time on the first today because this is the one that needs to be implemented, implemented most often and the one that usually brings immediate cure when there are two humble, loving people who are trying to resolve the issue. So step one, let's talk about step one. And I think in, the, in your bulletin are the other points that we'll, we'll touch on next week, but really this week we'll only do this one. The first thing to notice here is that Jesus tells us who to confront. So step one is speak to your brother privately. Notice that he says in verse 15, if your brother sins, that is, if uh, the person you should confront is your brother if there is someone to confront, you need to ask yourself, who, who do I need to confront? And the first answer is, at least in the teaching of Jesus, we only do church discipline with brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's a person who professes to be a Christian. He is someone who identifies with the local church. The word brother here is a family term. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. The importance of seeing the church as your spiritual nuclear family. And by the way, this is where church discipline happens. It happens not in the extended family. You don't discipline your aunts and uncles. You discipline your nuclear family, those who have entered covenant with you in the local church. And so clearly it refers to one who is part of a spiritual household, the spiritual household of God. And once again, we see that the New Testament refers to the church as the household, or in, in our typical terms, the family of God. We saw that in 1 Timothy 3.15. And 
And this speaks of the special relationship that God has with his people. And it also speaks to the reality of the special relationship that Christians have with one another in their local church. The first thing we need to learn here is that Jesus is teaching exclusively concerns the church. He's not speaking about confronting outsiders and unbelievers, though there is a place for that. I mean, if you're an employer, if you're in one of the other institutions, and God has given you some measure of limited delegated authority, then you are going to have to deal with sin there, but not in the same way. The focus, rather, is on confronting those who claim to be Christians and share fellowship with other members of the body. If they make no claim to belonging to Christ, we don't engage in discipline, we engage in evangelism. We want them to know Christ. And so your approach is going to be different. Even the Apostle Paul said, listen, when I said don't, don't uh, rub shoulders, don't, ev- don't uh, enjoy the company of, uh, of sinners, I wasn't talking about people outside the church because then you would have to isolate yourself from the world. What I meant was you should not fellowship with those in the church who are living an ungodly lifestyle. And so the answer to the question, who should receive discipline? The answer is members of the church. But there's a second question, namely, what sin must be confronted? And Jesus says that we should confront known sin. And specifically here, and not so much in, in, uh, in Luke 17, but here Jesus says specifically, if a man sins against you, if a brother sins against you. And then in his other teaching, he broadens it somewhat. But he doesn't give us a list to go to or offer any specific qualifications Should we confront a fellow believer on every sin that they commit? Um, Or or maybe just the big ones. Or maybe there's some other parameters to put in place. And maybe we can be more specific about that next week. But through the centuries, various Christian groups have come up uh, with some lists of what should be confronted and maybe what shouldn't be confronted. It's helpful to remember along the way, by the way, that the Lord himself has given us several lists of the kinds of sins that especially stand out to the heart of God, or at least to his apostles. For example, there's a list in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 10, very sobering. Jesus, both here and in Galatians 5, not Jesus, but the apostle Paul, says basically people who act like this go to hell. He says those who do such things will not enter the kingdom of God. And so that's, that's why you need to address this. It may be indicative of the fact that this person really doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have the Spirit of God indwelling them. But one list stands out to me in my thinking because it names a number of sins that we as evangelical moderns tend to not always think of as sins. I mean, we would know it if pressed, but we act like our functional theology, uh, in our functional theology, we don't normally identify these or react to these or suppress these when they come up in our hearts. And here's what 
Here's the list, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. Paul says, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. Oh my goodness, that's a virtue in our day. It's like the number one virtue. Love thyself. Uh, even in many churches, it all starts there. And here Paul's saying, no, no, no. Love yourself. That's a sin. Lovers of self. And of course, he's, he's talking about an a sinful version of self-love. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control. And Paul concludes this list by saying, now you read that list and you think, well, that one's not so bad. Well, that one's not, oh, that one could be bad. That one's, I mean, I did that one yesterday. And then he says this, avoid such men as these. Oh, that's, wow, that seems harsh. Suffice it to say that we should confront brothers and sisters in Christ when they commit any action that is forbidden by Scripture. A helpful rule of thumb here to keep in mind, that I like to think about whenever it's kind of rolling over in my mind, you know, this, it's really bugging me, what that person did, what they said, Here's, here's, a, here's kind of a litmus test. In step two, which we'll get to next week, uh, the rule is if they, if they don't respond to step one, a personal confrontation, then get two other witnesses to come with you. So the question is, in light of the second step of church discipline, ask yourself, would one or two more people of sound judgment Consider this issue significant enough to go along with me on it? If not, then maybe you're just being too sensitive. If so, then it probably needs to be confronted. That's not the only test, but one that you might keep in mind. Uh, I, I have a dear friend who's a fellow pastor. Him and his wife were in disagreement. She was saying that he did something sinful, and he was saying it's not a sin. And in exasperation, she said, okay, well, how about this? Will you still hold that position tonight when I call one of the elders? Okay, he's one of the pastors. And if I tell them what I heard you say, will you still believe that it wasn't a sin? And he said, no, ma'am, please don't call. <laughs> I repent. It might help us to remember, and I wish I had time to develop this. It might help us to remember, beloved, that God is holy. Therefore, God hates sin. Sin is what ruined God's perfect creation. Sin is what caused man's condemnation, his, the breach of fellowship between God and men. Sin is the result of... of the fruit of, of sin is divorce and it's division. And the only way to redeem creation and mankind was for God himself in the person of his precious son to die a violent, bloody death in our place. And beloved, dare we admit that most of us have a, an oops view of sin? 
we commit one of these sins that Paul mentions and we go, oops, that was funny. We make light of it. The Lord Jesus desires a pure and holy bride. But since his bride is made entirely of sinful people, loving confrontation is necessary whenever sin becomes known. And so any action forbidden in Scripture uh, is potentially one that should be addressed. But notice that I said it should, we should confront any action. That is, we need to limit loving confrontation to issues of observable action or words. And the main point I'm trying to make with that is simply this. And we don't judge one, another mo- one another's motives. You don't know what is truly in the heart of a person. You may have seen what they did and heard what they said, but you may not understand what was behind it. You may not understand what their motive was. No one can truly know what is going on in another person's heart unless they intentionally reveal it. And one of the things that we need to do when we're confronting a brother or sister in Christ over what we perceive to be a sin is to ask questions to get to the heart of it, and you may find out that what looked like it was sinful really wasn't. And so we don't judge one another's motives, nor do we get to confront another person on issues of preference, no matter how strongly you feel about it. Perhaps you enjoy a kind of music that someone else doesn't, doesn't like. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, there's some music that's, that's inherently sinful, like country. No, just kidding. I'm just... <laughs> I mean, any kind of music can be sinful, right? But for the most part, it's, it's a matter of preference. You might prefer certain kinds of food or drink. There, there are whole groups that, that are against drinking anything with caffeine. They obviously don't have the spirit, but... <laughs> And Paul talks about how do you, how do you handle this when, when one person is, is, a sense, is sensitive in, in this area? Their conscience is bothered by it. That's a whole other series of messages. So be careful that your judgment of another person's actions is truly a biblical judgment and, and not just a violation of your personal sensibilities that are informed from something other than Scripture. Paul says, let each person... Each person is to be fully convinced in his own mind that what he is doing pleases the Lord. And if you are unsure whether or not you should do one thing or another, ask yourself, do I think doing this would be pleasing to the Lord? I mean, would he be happy about this? I mean, if, if he were in the flesh, sitting in the seat next to me on, on the drive, would he participate in the kind of music I'm listening to or the kind of conversation we're having or the food that we're eating? or Will it be pleasing to the Lord? After all, Paul said, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. That's kind of the prime directive in our lives, in everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, all of it should be to the glory of God. It's just another way of saying that. Will this be pleasing to Christ? Another important question we should ask is, how should we confront a brother or sister who has sinned? And I just want to take the rest of my time here now to uh, take a 
take a look at six ways to approach a sinning brother. I just think this is critical. And, and this is kind of the pattern that, that I follow when confrontation is necessary, or try to follow. Number one, confront personally. Now, this is not in your, in your bulletin, so you might take this down and discuss them in small group this week. Confront the person personally. Now, there is just something about going to meet a person face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. It's not the same when you try to do it by phone or email or letter. Now, I realize the Apostle Paul confronted by letter, but that was his only method uh, many times. He, he, he couldn't get on a train or a bus or a plane and go visit the person. And so there are certain drawbacks that come from not meeting face-to-face. And let me tell you, I, I've done all of these. I've, I've tried confronting in all of these methods with variable, different results. And there's just nothing, in my experience, like a face-to-face conversation. Not only that, but a face-to-face conversation, you can just carry that on until you've reached a resolution and be done with it. I mean, if it's email, oh my goodness, it could drag on for weeks and weeks and weeks. I've seen it. It's terrible. Why not just meet, look each other in the eye, and be gracious to one another, and talk about it and resolve it? Um, One of the drawbacks of not meeting face-to-face is if you're not speaking face-to-face, there's no body language, or what we call halo data, the, in, the, the non-verbals. And the person needs to see you, see your face, your anguish, your tears. She needs to hear your tone, your, your love. She needs to sense that you love her, or she needs to feel your touch when that's appropriate. You just can't do any of that if you're not face-to-face. And so confront personally. It's not easy, but confront personally. Secondly, confront your brother circumspectly. In other words, approach the person about sin only after examining your own heart to see if you've sinned as well. Maybe you've contributed to the problem. One of the difficulties is if you're in conflict with someone, you're thinking, I've only contributed 5% of the problem. They've they've contributed 95%. So I get a pass. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you're 5% of the problem, then own the 5%. And you're probably going to find out you need to own more than that. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, Jesus commands that we take the log out of our own eye before trying to remove the speck in your brother's eye. He's commanding us not to address another person's sin if we have not engaged in appropriate self-examination relative to our own sin, especially if we are part of the problem. But it may be that you had no contribution to the problem whatsoever. You just saw it from a distance. Still, still, you should, before you confront, Lord, search me, know my heart. Can I just let you in on a little pastoral secret, at least for your pastor? Every morning as I'm walking over here, and in those final moments while I'm sitting in this chair, I'm asking the Lord to do that for me. Lord, I'm going to call people to repentance this morning. Grant me repentance. Expose anything in my heart that needs to change. Have I caused offense? 
unnecessarily? Have I sinned? Lord, bring it to light. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That should be the attitude of all of our hearts. And so engage in self-examination relative to your own sin. Thirdly, approach the brother or sister privately. Notice verse 15, Jesus says, show him his fault in private or with him alone. In other words, we must engage in biblical confidentiality. Remember, the only people who need to know about this sin are those who are a part of the problem or those who are part of the solution. And that's going to be a larger or smaller circle depending on the sin and the circumstance. To do otherwise is to invite gossip and possibly even slander of a brother or sister in Christ. And so approach loving confrontation privately. And by the way, if you're a member of this church, you had to fill, fill out some forms. You had to initial some things about our doctrine and, and whatnot. But, but we always, the elders, when, when we're going through that document, there's one statement that we always go back to before we conclude that final meeting. And it says this. If I ever have a conflict with another member of the body, or if I'm offended by something someone did or said, whether that be the pastors or um, one of us or, or even a member of the church body, that you commit that you will not get other people involved other than those who are part of the problem or a part of the solution, that you will not deal with it by getting on the phone and calling your friends in the church and say, oh, did you hear what Pastor so-and-so said? Or did you hear what, see what that person did? Oh, you need to, you know, whatever. Listen, if they're not a part of the problem or part of the solution, they shouldn't even know about the sin. And it may be that your wife, men, or your husband doesn't even know about the sin unless they're part of the solution or part of the problem. And so, number three, we we confront privately. And then number four, when we engage in loving confrontation, we do so tentatively. Remember the caution of Proverbs 18, 13, he who answers before he is heard, it is his folly and shame. You don't want to be the one who has got shame egg on your face because you went in with accusations rather than really trying to understand the situation. Likewise, in verse 17, of uh, Proverbs 18, it says, the first one to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Make sure you're doing your due diligence. The caution here is that many times things are not as they first appear and sometimes radically different than how it appears. Humility and wisdom demand that you approach the matter tentatively. You gotta convince yourself that maybe I mean, it looks pretty black and white, but I haven't asked any questions. I could be wrong. I might misunderstand. Now, there's a helpful axiom to keep in mind, and many of you have heard this a thousand times, but it's worth repeating. Um, in fact, I was just talking to a brother this morning about this, and it, it goes like this. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. Questions convict the conscience, 
but accusations harden the heart. Go in with questions. And for every answer, ask more questions until you are both in agreement of what actually happened. And then if it was sinful, then bring the appropriate confrontation. There have been times when I've approached people on what I thought for sure was sin only to discover that I didn't have all the facts. That's not any fun at all. I was so glad on those occasions where I went in asking questions and found out that I was wrong, that I never made an accusation. And you know what? Then the other person never knew what your perspective was. All you know, all you discussed in, in the conversation was the truth. And that's the way it should always be. And so we need to confront people personally, circumspectly, privately, tentatively. And number five, when we must confront, we should do it gently. Galatians 6.1 is our guide here. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a, a one in a spirit of gentleness. And then with the warning, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then, by the way, the, the next statement he makes is, bear one another's burdens. And there's no room for spiritual pride or superiority when confronting a fellow believer about their sin. When I need to be confronted, and it happens, when I need to be confronted, I want it to be by someone who realizes they're in, in just as much need of the cross of Jesus Christ as, as I ever was. I don't want some self-righteous Bible thumper to come talk to me about my sin. I don't want them to cut me off at the knees. I, I want someone who will look me in the eye and say what needs to be said in a way that demonstrates their love for Christ and their love for me and their concern that I be restored to God and whatever person I may be at odds with. And Paul, Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 2, 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have, especially for you. I've experienced that kind of confrontation before in key moments in my life. And it was profound and life-changing. And I've experienced the other as well, which is just infuriating and not helpful. Beloved, from time to time, we may need to be confronted on sin, but we need to do it gently, carefully, in order to bring about repentance and complete restoration. And then number six, when you have to confront someone biblically, do it prayerfully. As with anything else we do as believers, loving confrontation needs to be bathed in prayer. We need to go into that meeting knowing that the most important person who will be in this meeting is not me. And it's not even the other person. It's the Holy Spirit. He's the most important person in the room. Only He can bring about true repentance. Only He has the power to change a man's heart. We need to plead with him to come and do what only he, the Holy Spirit, can do in the soul of a person that we are called to confront. Because no amount of strategizing can accomplish what needs to happen. And we should pray, too, 
that he would use this circumstance to change our own lives. I, I pray that every time I enter a counseling case situation, I always pray at the beginning, and I always pray that God would change my heart too. And I'm the counselor, right? But I know as I present the word of God, the Holy Spirit speaking to me as well. And so may it change our lives. May we be open to having it change our lives and make us more sensitive to our own sin and give us a greater passion for purity and holiness. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so approach the brother or sister prayerfully. So there you have it. All of us are called to confront sin among our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we need to be careful to confront them with a biblical in a biblical manner, in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And that means we do it personally, circumspectly, privately, tentatively, gently, and prayerfully. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. After a conversation with a church member a while back, one of the staff at the church asked me this question, Pastor, do you think you were as gracious as you could have been when you were speaking to that person? What was he doing? Asking a question. He could have come a different way, right? The reality was that I had been impatient, haughty, and dismissive. But the scriptures clearly teach that I should be slow to anger and patient with everyone. I needed to ask her forgiveness. And when I did, it made our relationship better than it was. I'll, I'll let you in on something here. We're, we're going to have Bill and Becky Petit come. They're our missionaries to Japan. And they're going to visit us in um, January. I think January 19th. January or February. And, uh, and you know what? Uh, we are... They are very, very dear friends. In fact, Bill Petit married my wife and I. We were such close friends. It wasn't always that way. Uh, there was one point in time when we were in college, he was in seminary, and he was uh, a leader over me, and I took leadership of the group that I was in, uh, inappropriately so, and I really hurt him and his family. And I didn't do it intentionally, but it doesn't matter. Most sins are unintentional, right? And, uh, and our relationship was just about over until God brought to mind these truths. And you know what? You know what happened? Our relationship didn't get worse. It was far better after. Far better after. Uh, I can't wait for that couple to come. I've already spoken with them two or three times, and every time we do... We just almost weep with joy. We're so anxious to see each other. On another occasion, I came home from the office, tired and hungry and generally impatient with my family. At the dinner table, the kids were being especially energetic. It's <laughs> a good term. And I responded by giving them a verbal tongue lashing which, by the way, is nowhere prescribed in Scripture. I checked the concordance. <laughs> My wife, who was sitting at the other end of the table, responded simply by giving me a knowing look. She could have lashed out in defense of the children, but instead 
She responded in a manner that was respectfully discreet and transparently clear. And it helped me to realize that I had verbally sinned against my family. It took a few minutes to humble my proud heart, proud heart and, and gather my anxious thoughts about me. But within a few minutes, I was able to confess my sin and ask their forgiveness. And once again, um, this is step one of loving confrontation, just as it was in the other illustration. When we talk about confrontation, this is what it looks like. It's what it looks like. And sometimes it's not even as, as frictional or rough as, as these sound. So often when it happens here in the church body, it's just a friendly conversation, a little correction, and it's received well at step one. That's why I said, usually that's all that's needed. When two people are walking in the Spirit, it just doesn't take a lot of effort. Confrontation of sin is a necessary act of love between Christians. And when offered in love and responded to with humility, it's a game changer for the household of Kirk and the household of God. And so the first step of loving confrontation is speak to your brother privately. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's table this morning, I wonder how this teaching of Jesus is affecting your heart. Perhaps you realize that you've sinned against someone. They've offended or irritated you. God is calling you to loving confrontation, but maybe they confronted you and you responded badly. It's the Spirit of God urging you to make that right this morning. It's part of why we take the Lord's Supper, one of the means of grace toward bringing reconciliation is when Paul tells us, don't even think about coming to the table in an unworthy manner. On the other hand, maybe after hearing this text and this message, maybe the opposite is true. Maybe you have such a deep fear of man that you never confront anyone on their sin. If that's you, if that's your normal response, can I suggest to you that this, while it looks like peacemaking, is really peace-faking? And it is also sinful. Why? Because Jesus commands us to do it. And yet you remain unwilling. It brings him glory to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is disobedience to the Lord not to confront sin. Some sin that should be confronted. And so I ask, is the Holy Spirit leaning on your heart this morning, urging you to repent of your loveless fear of man. Let me encourage you with a proverb that, that has encouraged my heart many times. Proverbs 28, 23 says, he who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And I have found that to be true. You may think, well, if we do all of this, I mean, won't we create a legalistic loveless church well, doing it wrongly will harm the church. Using it as a license to express your own self-righteousness will certainly hurt the church. 
But when we do it, personally, circumspectly, privately, tentatively, gently, and prayerfully, with a desire to truly restore the sinner and please the Lord, the outcome can only be a more loving, more mature, more Christ-exalting church than we have ever had before. In Calvary Bible Church, we need to hear this message. We need to hear this message again. And those of you who will eventually join Christ Fellowship Bible Church, you need to hear this message. And you need to be prepared to apply it. It does no good to hear the word and not obey the word. And so Jesus' prescription for addressing sin, I believe, is the key to purity and practical unity in the body of Christ. May we be found faithful to do it for his glory and for our own great joy.